The Guardian. It has been a very, very long year. Here on the podcast, we've been reporting on COVID-19 since our first episode in January. And during that time, we've looked at everything from the science of our immune systems to detecting the virus in sewage. So for the end of the year, we've decided to look back at what's happened over 2020. In our first episode on Tuesday, we discussed the initial emergence of the virus and our response to it and some of the more scandalous moments of those first six months. There's kind of two effects of the of the Cummings debacle. Now, one effect was a, a damage to the sense of national unity, we're all in it together. I think that's been irreparably damaged now. The notion we're all in it together, I think people treat that with, with cynicism now. In this episode, health editor Sarah Bosley and science editor Ian Sample were joined by Christina Pargel, Professor of Operational Research at University College London and member of IndieSage, a group of scientists providing independent advice to the government. And John Jerry, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Sussex and a member of the Independent Scientific Pandemic Insights Group on Behaviours, or SPY-B. They've been advising the government throughout the pandemic. We're picking up at the start of the summer. When we released restrictions in June and July, we were releasing them every couple of weeks. We just weren't giving ourselves the chance to see what was working and what wasn't working. And this was a time when you could see America was having a second wave, Israel was having a bad time, South Africa was having a bad time, and you could see it was associated with opening bars and restaurants. And it just felt like we weren't planning, that everyone was taking the summer off, including the government. I'm Madeline Finlay, podcast producer, and you're listening to the second part of our review of the year. And what a year it's been. Sarah, Ian, we left off in the last episode with the Dominic Cummings incident and the ill feeling that that had caused. And some suspect that in response to this, the UK government began to quickly ease restrictions. But one piece of science that was hoping to move us towards the end of lockdown measures were antibody tests. At the time, the UK's testing system was still struggling to get up to sufficient capacity. But a lot was made of using countrywide antibody testing to see who had had the virus and who might have immunity to it. So, Sarah, tell us a bit more about what happened there. There was a lot of excitement about antibody tests on the assumption that people who'd had the infection would then be immune to it. Obviously, that happens in some diseases. We didn't honestly know whether that would be the case with this one, but it was assumed that it would be. So Matt Hancock in March bought 3.5 million antibody tests from various companies uh, in China, mostly. And there was a moment when we were told by Sharon Peacock at Public Health England, who was giving evidence to a select committee, that we would soon have an antibody test. Everybody in the country would be able to test themselves at home and find out whether they'd had the disease and whether they would be immune to it as a result. And that caused massive excitement. I remember covering that story at the time and thinking, wow, you know, this could be the end game then. I think I may have used that that word even in my story. Uh, And of course, it wasn't true. 
because firstly, the tests that Hancock had bought when evaluated by Public Health England were not up to scratch. So they weren't detecting antibodies at the accuracy rates that they needed to. And second of all, a lot of people then pointed out that we didn't yet know whether any immunity that you might have shortly after recovering from COVID actually lasted. And we still don't know that. So antibody tests have proved to be a real disappointment. Despite the downfall of antibody tests, at the same time, trials for vaccines and treatments for COVID-19 were making a lot of progress. And Ian, this is something you asked Sarah about when joined by Christina Pargel and John Jury last week. Sarah, I want to move on to the search for treatments for this, because obviously as patients were pouring into hospitals in countries around the world, trials started up to try and find any drug that was already in the cabinet that might start helping some of these patients. And in the UK, obviously, that involved the recovery trial run at Oxford. And June was an interesting month for them because they came out, first of all, saying that this, uh, by this point, very famous drug, hydroxychloroquine, wasn't going to be that effective. And then a couple of weeks later, I think it was, they came out and said that this very cheap and readily available uh, steroid was going to be effective for people. What, what was the impact of that, do you think? I think it was tremendous. It was one of the turning points, really, of the whole pandemic, simply because they knocked down this drug, hydroxychloroquine, that really didn't work, but had been the subject of such a lot of hype and speculation. And as you say, shortly after, they produced, like a rabbit out of a hat, a drug we already had, a lovely cheap steroid that is available all over the world, dexamethasone, which actually does help. And it was saving lives amongst those people who were severely ill. The hydroxychloroquine thing was astonishing, really. That came from, um, there was a, the Dr. Didier Raoult in Marseille, who I think started this going. And it was an example of doctors actually deciding to trial things, not, not properly to trial things, doctors deciding to try things out on their patients just because they had a hunch that they were going to work. Unfortunately, that has happened far too much all over the world with all sorts of drugs, not just that one. And President Trump picked up on it. And from then on, of course, um, everybody wanted it. And it took the recovery trial, which is a gold standard trial, um, and actually compares people who do have the drug with people who don't. And that is actually the only way to come to a definitive answer. And Christina, I don't know if you want to say anything on that. I remember back in, in the spring, I was working quite closely with various ICU doctors. And, and some of them were kind of saying it felt like, like the Wild West, that people were exactly like Sarah was saying, just trying out things. But it also came from a place of desperation. I mean, I remember one ICU doctor was saying to me, she just said, look, we've got these incredibly sick patients coming in and we just don't know how to make them better. So they just wanted to try things, you know, but then they had the, you know, the counterweight saying that we have to do this via trials. That's the only way we can really understand it. And we have now managed to find some effective treatments, which has been pretty amazing. It is quite a problem. As you say, you know, the fact that you've got nothing at all means you're going to to experiment. And is, there's been a big problem, for instance, in the US with doctors being expected to give their patients anything that's being talked about as a potential therapy. And uh, 
Blood plasma is another one. They've used so much plasma in the States that they could by now have easily sorted out whether or not it works if they had compared those people who got it against people who didn't. And they haven't done that. They've just given it to all and sundry. So you don't get an answer and you may be giving people the wrong treatment. So this was all happening in and around June. And obviously, we've witnessed that first wave. We're going into the summer. How was the mood with all of you? Were you thinking, look, that was tough. We might be able to ride this out. That may, may be the worst we see. Or were you actually feeling that's nothing compared to what's coming? It'd be good to hear what you saw coming ahead at that point. Independent Sage basically spent the summer saying that we just have to use this opportunity to suppress it as low as we can possibly go and uh, and put in border controls, which which didn't happen. Because when we released restrictions in June and July, we were releasing them every couple of weeks. And it takes at least three to four weeks to see any impact on cases in the data. So I kind of felt like it was always too quick because we just weren't giving ourselves a chance to see what was working and what wasn't working. And this was a time when you could see America was having a second wave, Israel was having a bad time, South Africa was having a bad time. And you could see it was associated with opening bars and restaurants. And later in August with university students going back and it just felt like we weren't planning, that everyone was taking the summer off, including the government. And that really worried me because I just thought, well, we're not putting in place any of the things we need to put in place if it comes back in the winter. I didn't know how bad it would be. I, you know, In the end, it ended up being worse than I was expecting. It felt like a wasted summer. And I found it incredibly frustrating. John, it'd be great to get your thoughts on how you sort of deal with the public behaviour when you come out of the summer some people, I, I, I'm sure, had a feeling, okay, we've probably got a bit of a breathing space until the winter proper. Is there a challenge there in having to get messages together to, to get people to think, actually, no, you need to start, start taking this seriously. You need to start getting your mind around um, restrictions again after this nice summer break you've had? Well, yes, but that was because of the, the messaging over the summer. And the most important one was around early July. Um, if you remember, it was the 4th of July that restrictions were relaxed. And if you remember, the week leading up to that date, the tabloids were full of exclamations of end of lockdown, freedom, uh, freedom Saturday, all this kind of stuff. So I think what had happened there was that the government had probably briefed them because by the end of that week leading up to the 4th, the government started backpedalling and saying, well, no, it's not going to be the end of lockdown. It's not going to be the end of everything. Um, but in that week leading up to that, uh, the, the, the actual date, um, there was certainly a, a, a mood of celebration was promoted. And, you know, there's a, there's a kind of implicit messaging there that you can relax. And I think we've got the same thing around about now. Um, you know, we're, we're talking now, uh, just coming up to Christmas, and you've got the same issue of um, the meta message now, they've had to backtrack this week and say, oh, keep it short and, you know, don't go full on and don't visit if you, if you don't have to. But previously, they just announced it's going to be an amnesty from COVID, in effect. You know, you can relax at Christmas and we've got a vaccine and lockdown's just finished. And so the meta message there, again, was you can relax. And so it is difficult to persuade people to adhere to some of these things if the meta message is that, you know, things are safer and that's why we're relaxing everything. 
It's interesting the idea of the meta message because I do remember all the papers talking about Super Saturday on the 4th of July when bars and pubs were reopening and we were all being encouraged to go out and boost the economy by visiting restaurants and pubs and cafes. Ian, what was your view on the government's move to get us supporting the hospitality sector again? We had this this policy from uh, Rishi Sunak for eat out to help out. A lovely idea to to sort of reboot the economy by having loads of people cram into restaurants and cafes over the summer, over August, and have money off their meals. So what you're doing is obviously you're taking people out of a lockdown, which you've done to hide from the virus. Have them come out into the summer when they're all really excited and they're all a little bit demob happy because they've been in such grim confinement. And then say, actually, we're going to give you loads of money so you can go and um, eat with loads of other people in enclosed restaurants. And okay, some of it will be eating outside. I'm being a little unfair. But that policy brought together an awful lot of people under the same roof. And obviously, that would have helped spread infections. And so we didn't have to wait long for the next wave to come along. People were talking about the second wave coming in the winter. And it came in the autumn. It came very fast. And it's not like there weren't scientists warning about this. What happened was uh, completely unmysterious. It's exactly what you'd expect to happen with a virus and a people. Seeing the data at the time, it did feel so frustrating watching cases climb as we approached September, not only because it seemed as if we'd missed our opportunity to actually get control of the virus and properly implement test, trace and isolate, but also because at that point we were being encouraged to go back to work in offices and school terms were just about to start again. And any parent will know that schools are a viral and bacterial hub. And Ian, you asked Christina Pargel about this. There was this other key point in mid-September, although we didn't find out about it until first week of October. And that was the advice that came out from Sage to do the circuit breaker on the 21st of September. And I think the news came out about three weeks later. And we didn't do it. And then we we left it to the point that we ended up having a month-long lockdown later on. What did Indy Sage make of that? I mean, we, we called for a circuit breaker, I think, in the middle of October um, and tougher restrictions earlier than that. And and consistently called for improved contact tracing, which just wasn't improving. And I think basically the performance metrics stayed the same and then started getting really bad in September because there was that massive demand for testing, which, again, didn't seem to be anticipated that people going back to school would want to get tests. So um, it was just because I vividly remember giving, I do these kind of Friday briefings on what the numbers are on a Friday when we'd got to about 1,700 cases. And I remember saying, you know, it keeps going up. Are we just going to get complacent? What if what if in two weeks' time we're at 2,500 and we just got used to it? And then that weekend it jumped to 3,000. And I just remember thinking, oh, shit, basically, this isn't. This isn't good news. And watching it go up and up. And in the middle of September, we were on eight day doubling, which is really quick. For me, as someone who works with numbers, when I see that, I can just think in three, four weeks time, we're in massive trouble and and we have to act now. Otherwise, we just like just to wait to get into trouble is completely the wrong approach with with an infectious disease that spreads exponentially. And I just had always assumed, even in the summer, I'd assumed that the government had learned that. I'd assumed that we had all now understood that the earlier you act, the better it is. 
And it hadn't, it literally had not occurred to me that if Sage would sound the alarm bells as they did at mid-September, that they would be ignored. And instead we got this curfew and the rule of six, which just felt like restriction window dressing. Do you know what I mean? Like that's not, that was never going to really have an impact. Um, so it felt just incredibly frustrating and and sad because I, you know, I wrote an article in the middle of October and just said that the people who are going to die over the next four weeks already have COVID and there will be 6,000 deaths and, and just waiting to act just is thousands more deaths. And that's, and that's what happened. And I felt I could not, I couldn't do anything about it. And Sarah, were we the only country, I presume not, but we were, were we the only country to have this sort of sense of amnesia after the first wave or did other countries go through this just as we did? Well, what's interesting is that there's been a, a pandemic curve that's just about been identical, really, in many European countries. So what was very noticeable was that Italy and Spain were just ahead of us. They were on the first pandemic wave and they were on the second one. So we could have learned from them, really. It's hard to imagine why we didn't. As countries headed into their second waves and winter approached, thankfully, finally, there was some good news. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has been tested on over 40,000 volunteers and interim results suggest it is proving 90% effective at protecting people against the virus. The development of effective and safe vaccines in less than a year has been an astonishing feat of science. And now the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is being administered in several countries around the world. I asked Eleanor Riley, Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Edinburgh, about what she thought when the trial results came in for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. The evidence that we've been getting from some of the phase one, phase two trials, um, some of the studies of immune responses in people who were infected with the virus, they had all gradually built confidence, at least in me, that a vaccine was going to be possible and, and actually that a vaccine wasn't going to be that difficult. But until you actually get the proof, you can't be sure. And there's always that doubt at the back of your mind. And I think the one wow for me was actually seeing the graph in the Pfizer-BioNTech paper showing the rate at which cases accumulated in the placebo group compared to the vaccinated group. And the first week after the vaccinations, cases accumulated in both groups of people at exactly the same rate. And then suddenly, 10 days after the first vaccination, those two lines started to diverge. And the line for the vaccinated group was essentially flat. There were no more cases, whereas the um, line for the uh, placebo group just went climbing inexorably on and on and on. And that, for me, is the one image that made me go, yep. That vaccine works. For many of us, the vaccine trial results felt like we finally had a tool to get the pandemic under control and eventually bring it to an end. So I asked Eleanor if she had that same rush of excitement when the announcement came in. It, well, I'm not sure it was exciting because it was sort of, and I don't want to be negative, but immunologically speaking, it's not a particularly unexpected or interesting finding. We've got a new vaccine. It works. 
we have made many, many new vaccines in the last decade, um, and they haven't received any attention at all. So it wasn't excitement. It was just a sense of sheer relief that we now had something that was going to eventually bring this pandemic under control. So it wasn't excitement. It was absolutely relief and a kind of thank God moment. Now, unfortunately, I am going to bring the mood down. As we're recording this, Boris Johnson has just put London and most of the South East into Tier 4, which pretty much resembles the first lockdown in March. And for those areas, Christmas has also been cancelled in the sense that you can't visit any friends or family. And in lower tiers, the window for visits is limited to one of the households for just Christmas Day. And all of this has happened because of the new variant that was discovered in the UK and has now been found to be significantly more infectious, although thankfully it doesn't seem to cause a more severe disease. But, I mean, it does look pretty bleak for us, doesn't it, Ian? Well, it was the worst Christmas present ever. And what's in store? I mean, we have to say that at the moment... There is still a lot of work going on to understand what what this new variant does mean and what it doesn't mean. But there's a lot of circumstantial and lab work that points to it being, as you say, more infectious, certainly seems to be spreading incredibly fast and displacing other other variants that are out there. So becoming, you know, the dominant strain, um, certainly in London, in the East, Norfolk, um, Essex, Kent, but it's it's scattering across the country and it's already you know outside tier four areas, and that's when we are already in a pretty strict isolation. It just doesn't look good. And what we need to look at with the science are things like: is it causing more serious disease? Is it actually more transmissible? And do we know why? Um, and is it affecting different people? It may be that there's more of this in in younger people in you know that would explain why we've seen so much COVID in secondary schools. But that's not clear yet. I think what it means for the next year is we are gonna have to surely be in strict and stricter lockdowns to keep this from spreading. And I don't know how we keep schools open and keep this spreading because there's only so many things you can do without this this ballooning. And um, you know, it, it raises the R, people talk about it raising the R from about 0.4 but it's actually getting ranges from about 0.4 to maybe close to one so you you'd have to do an awful lot to prevent it spreading and i think we just have to get the vaccine out as soon as possible because the vaccine will surely offer some protection it'd be almost impossible for the vaccines not to be useful against it you also asked christina and john for their view on what lies ahead and i should say that you spoke to them before the tier four announcements but Let's hear their thoughts at the time. So here we are at the end of an exceptionally long 2020, going into 2021 with hopefully working vaccines, at least one decent therapeutic and hopefully a a lot of lessons learned. How are you all feeling about 2021? Do you see us being over the worst? Do you feel optimistic? Christina, do you want to start? I think January is going to be a horrible month. It's going to be really bad and I'm really worried about it. And that's because cases are rising, hospitalizations are rising since the end of 
the November lockdown and we've yet to see what the impact of Christmas will be, but it's not going to be good. It's really bad, basically. Hospital occupancy is really high. And what makes me so sad is that a lot of the people who are going to die in January are people who probably would have been pretty high up on the list to get a vaccine in January or February. I think we're going to have a horrible start to the year. However, from March onwards, maybe even February onwards, we should start to see the impact of vaccinating vulnerable groups kick in. And we should start to see hospitalizations and deaths come down. And I'm hoping that by the summer, by the end of the summer, we'll be in a much, much better position. It's just that I kind of feel like we'll limp there as opposed to finish strongly. Yeah, I don't feel optimistic about the government's management of the pandemic. I think the same problems will uh, keep arising. I mean, your newspaper has documented the what they call the chumocracy, and that is not just a kind of moral issue of these friends of the government and they're getting their noses in the snout. It's also very damaging things like find, test, trace and isolate and support. However, I am hopeful or inspired, maybe that's the right word, uh, about one development, which is these mutual aid groups, because the more that we've looked at them, the more interesting uh, they seem as a movement. I mean, politically, if you're looking at social movements, there's two things going on. Right. One is this anti-mask, anti-lockdown demonstrations, and the other one is the mutual aid groups. And, you know, the anti-mask, anti-lockdown protests have the appearance of radicality. They get into fights with the cops and that kind of thing. And the mutual aid groups are a bit more low profile, uh, maybe a bit more middle class as well, to be honest. But one thing that's very interesting about them is the development of their ideas about their functions, because they have changed over time. Um, certainly was a, a massive outpouring at the beginning and as well as a change in the volume of activity and the types of requests and, and this kind of thing there's been a change for some of them in their aims and some of them say okay we've done covid we want to do something else now we want to do local government or we want to do politics or we want to do food banks or we want to do something else and, and we like this you know this horizontal organizing and we like this capacity and this empowerment we've got in our community and, and there's so many of them still. I mean, you know, thousands of people are involved in these groups and people that were volunteers previously, some of pe- people were political previously, but many people had not been involved in anything like this before. And so it's an eye open for them and a, a change for them in, in a positive way. Sarah, what's your view on where we stand now with the new variant, cases and hospitalisations surging and the prospect of further lockdowns at the start of 2021? This looks a bit grim, frankly, Um, whether it's the variant or the variant plus the fact that people haven't been quite as careful, perhaps, in this lockdown this last lockdown in November, as they were in March, is difficult to say. Whatever is the reason, though, the cases have been rising exponentially. So we do have a big problem. um, And now we're really slamming the brakes on. Everybody's Christmas was cancelled. The hope will be, though, that these very severe measures actually do push the virus down. The problem we've got is the exponential rise. So that has to stop and go into reverse. If we can do that, if we can just push the virus levels down across the whole country, then things will start to look better. And then, of course, we've got the vaccines coming. 
a huge thanks to health editor Sarah Bosley, science editor Ian Sample, and professors Christina Pargle, John Jury, and Eleanor Riley for speaking to us. And a huge thanks to you, our listeners. It has been brilliant to receive all of your questions and comments throughout the year. And although we haven't been able to reply to all of them, we couldn't have done our COVID-19 coverage without it. We're really grateful that so many of you took the time to email in. We were hoping that by the end of 2020, we wouldn't have to say this anymore. But if you do have queries about the science behind the pandemic for us to look at, send them in at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. Just before you press pause on this episode, I'd like to tell you about The Guardian's 2020 charity appeal, supporting young people impacted by the pandemic. Everyone's lives have been disrupted by coronavirus this year, but children and young adults, especially those from poorer families, have shouldered school closures, the exams fiasco, massive youth unemployment and reduced leisure activities, all primarily to protect older generations. So if you'd like to donate, visit theguardian.com forward slash charity appeal 2020 that's all one word and we'll put a link to it on the podcast webpage. finally all that's left to say is that from the science weekly team we hope that you had a merry christmas and have a happy new year we'll be back next week when we'll be starting 2021 with some interstellar escapism by exploring humanity's relationship with the cosmos as always stay safe and see you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.